and thank you for the offering this evening. Let me invite you to open your Bible, if you would, to Exodus chapter number 3. Exodus chapter number 3, and a passage of Scripture that um, we have been looking at for several weeks now. And uh, around here when we get into our Bible preaching services on Sunday night and Wednesday night, as well as Sunday morning to a degree, uh, we don't really look at it as getting finished with something. We just look at it as, uh, let me turn the mic on. We don't look at it as something we need to finish. We look at it as something that's just constant and ongoing. So um, when I was in school in uh, Tennessee, uh, especially the elementary school, we had uh, we had uh, five days of eating at the school, and uh, everybody in the school looked forward to Friday. The meal Friday was an accumulation of everything we didn't eat through the week put into a soup. I mean, they didn't waste nothing. So they just saved it all, and then on Friday, they put it in this great old big container, add a little meat here and a little meat there, and we had this conglomerate that uh, they called end-of-the-week soup. And everybody in school loved it, thought it was the best thing going. Now, grant you, they would not eat the individual meals of vegetables during the week. But when you put it in the soup, all the soup was gone. That was the one time you could go back for seconds and whatever else. And uh, it accumulated, as we say. That's the way my sermons do. They accumulate. And then when they get heavy enough, we sort of kick them out. It's like a bell of hay. And so tonight we're still in the life and about the life of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And uh, what I don't want you to forget about the life of Moses is that there are two other passages that speak very much about Moses and uh, what the Lord did with him. And I'm convinced, and I hope you will be as we go along, that he was without a doubt one of the great men of the Old Testament, if not the greatest. And uh, the one criteria by speaking of that is that God spoke to him more than anybody else in the whole of the Bible. There are no other record of God speaking to a man more frequently than he spoke to Moses. And he spoke to him, the Bible said, face to face. Now, we know the Bible also says that no man ever saw God and lived and so the ideal of face-to-face is really more of a, um, what do you call it, a cliche, because it wouldn't be a matter that he saw God. God is spirit, and he just simply means that he was close enough and connected enough that uh, he got it right, what he was told. And uh, it's amazing in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Numbers, uh, the number of times the Bible says the Lord spoke to Moses, just repeatedly so. What we uh, have uh, learned is that is a very important part. And the second thing is that uh, when he was born, he was born in the very midst of a very big crisis among the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. And that is that uh, there was a Pharaoh there who once upon a time appreciated Joseph. Joseph, uh, uh, one of the sons of Jacob, was uh, instrumental in saving uh, all of the Egyptians and uh, many of the Hebrews by virtue that he's the one who came up with a game plan when the seven years of famine came. Uh, he was the one who was the strategist of how to solve this problem and make sure that they survived, and they did. And it was Joseph's doing who was under the auspices of the Lord and the direction of the Lord who got that done. So one day there comes on a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. He does not appreciate him. He does have any care for him, a concern for him. And the Bible makes that clear that they came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And the inference is that he was hard again on the Hebrews, and he made it tough on them. And he became also, he was a little bit paranoid about the fact there were so many of them, and he feared that they might rise up against the Egyptians if they ever went to war and would fight the Egyptians from the inside. So his idea was, we've got to put a stop to this expansion, this multiplication. And he ordered that all the sons be killed of the Hebrew people. Well, you know how that went. The Hebrew women, who were the midwives, were ordered by the Pharaoh to kill the sons. And they simply told the Pharaoh, when we get there, the Hebrew women have already had their children because they're so lively. Well, uh, that may or may not have been the whole truth, but the Lord accepted it. And the Bible says he blessed the midwives in that they could have children. Evidently, they were barren before. And so they were able to have children by virtue of doing that. 
So the Lord blessed them for his preservation of his people. Well, there were a number, no doubt, of the Hebrew sons that did get tossed into the river. And the fact of the matter is, Acts chapter 7 is one of the chapters of the Bible, one of the books of the Bible. And remember, as I told you before, it's Acts 7 and Hebrews 11 that talk about Moses. So it's a 7-11, Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. And in Acts 7, it says and makes the point that um, Moses was born in the midst of that crisis. Well, that's no accidental, unessential thing. That's a big deal. That just sort of gives you a heads up that God is undertaking and God is intervening in Moses' life. He brought him up at a crisis. He got him through it. And he not only got him through it, but he got him picked up and adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. It put him inside the palace. He's getting a, 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 an Egyptian insight, an education, as it were. And it was a very valuable one, though it was not acceptable with God that that would suffice to lead the children of Israel out of bondage. That's why we come to he in Exodus chapter 3 where the Lord takes him to the backside of the desert and gives him a biblical, spiritual, theological understanding of how God was going to use a man. The world cannot prepare a man to do the work of the ministry. It can't do it. Yeah, I don't care what you get out of the world. The world cannot prepare a man for the work of the ministry. And so consequently, the Lord takes him on the backside of the desert, not for a year or two, and not for a four-year degree. He takes him on the backside of the desert 40 years. Remember now, when he left Egypt, he'd been there 40 years. And he gets to the backside of the desert, and we have very little said about him in chapter 3, but the Bible indicates he spent 40 years back there. And the Lord got sort of a purging effect on him and got out of him all that worldliness of the Egyptian mindset and how that worked and how you did things. And he taught him in the ways that God intended to use him as he would lead all those Hebrew slaves out of bondage. Now, don't forget that uh, in the explanations, and we won't go all the verses we've done before, but we expressed to you and showed you the verses that indicate that uh, God set up two things for the Hebrews that is, he got them out of Egypt. One of them was he would deliver them from the bondage. The second thing was he would lead them into the promised land. Well, he only chose Moses for the first half. Moses would get them out. Joshua would get them in. And that's a big deal because if we look at Egypt and we consider it the world as we live in, uh, in uh, America, uh, there's a lot about how we're engaged in a society that is worldly-minded. It would be, as they used to call for the old preachers, they'd call it Egyptian-minded. And that is you had a philosophy of how you operated that you thought was the best to benefit you. Uh, the Christian doesn't operate that way. He operates according to what the Bible says, knowing it will bring honor and glory to the Lord, and he also himself will benefit by that. So the consequence is that uh, Moses from the get-go is not told that he'll lead them in. He's only told that he'll lead them out. And so uh, I, I'm personally convinced that Moses knew early on, um, and he repeats it two or three times, one of them in uh, Numbers and one in Deuteronomy. He, in effect, says, because of you, and he's talking to the Hebrews, because of you, the Lord won't let me go in. But the technical truth is it was because of Moses' disobedience. Now, he can blame other people, as some Christians do. But the fact of the matter is, any failures in our life, by virtue that we have the Holy Spirit that indwells us and the Word of God at our fingertips, it's hard to blame somebody else for our failure to be all in spiritual as we could be. And I've said it before to you, and I hope that uh, you let it sink in deep to your heart because it puts the responsibility where it belongs. Every Christian in this room is as spiritual as they want to be. Every person in this room who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is as spiritual, is as mature as they want to be in the faith at this stage. And that just simply says the responsibility is on your shoulders and mine. It's, a, it's not a zapping that happens in a service and you get it all in one lightning strike. That's not the way it works. As we've been teaching on Wednesday night, I think one of the keys of that in the Christian life is to understand the thing about the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is a controlling factor of the, of the Christian life. 
And it is a matter that, uh, I repeat it again, that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and you didn't ask for it or pray for it. And you were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. You didn't pray for it or ask for it. You were indwelt by the Spirit of God. You didn't pray for it and you didn't ask for it. It was all automatic when you trusted Christ as your Savior if indeed you have been born again. The one thing that the Spirit doesn't do without your cooperation is fill you or control you. And that's why you can say everybody is as spiritual as they want to be because you are in the driver's seat. The more you yield to the Spirit of God, the more He controls. The more He controls, the better your Christian life will be, the greater its success and the obvious blessings that God will rain upon it. But most people don't want anybody else controlling them. In fact, Americans are known for control freaks. You know, we, we want to be in control. We don't want anybody telling us what to do or how to do it. So it's very hard for Christians in America to be spirit-filled. Just tough. Because we don't want to yield. We want to do it my way. I was at a funeral years ago. Members of our fellowship asked me if I'd take a funeral uh, for a family that didn't have a church. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll take the funeral. I took this funeral. And uh, one of the most unique funerals I'd ever been in because when we came to the funeral service, right before I was to speak, they had Frank Sinatra singing, singing, I did it my way. I mean, have you ever heard Frank Sinatra sing, I did it my way? I mean, the whole thing is so anti-Bible, anti-Christian, and, and anti-anything that we stand for. And I'm supposed to get up after this guy gets through singing, Frank Sinatra at that, who had mafia tries, and I'm going to get up and preach. And my idea is I'm going to go up and cut down everything in this song they just heard. I say to you that um, this whole philosophy of man is that uh, that's the way we're born and that's the way we'll die unless two things happen. Thing number one is unless we're born again. And I mean born again and know it and show it. The Bible talks about both of those in the book of Peter. It talks about knowing and showing. And the fact of the matter is that's what it ought to be. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you ought to know it and your life ought to show it. The second thing about it is it's not only that you know you're saved and you've been saved by the grace of God, not by works of righteousness and et cetera, et cetera. But the second thing is you need to be spirit-filled. Now, you don't have to be spirit-filled to go to heaven. There will be a lot of folks in heaven who were not spirit-filled on earth. But God's will for you is that every Christian be spirit-filled. Ephesians 5.18, very clear. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. And God commands that. He commands that people repent and believe on Christ, and He commands that we be filled with the Spirit. If we were and if we are, our lives will reflect that. So what God's always working on is working on a person, and as in the case with Moses, and though the New Testament truth concerning the Spirit filling is not so much laid out for us here, it ultimately is to show Moses that he has to be God-centered. And it's the same factor, to be God-centered. So here we are in chapter 3, look if you would, verse 1, And Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, now, if you talk to yourself, how many folks talk to yourself when you're going through some kind of deal? Anybody? Yeah, sure. Moses talked to himself. Moses said, hey, I'm going to go over here and turn aside and I'm going to see this great sight, why this bush is not burnt. He noticed that it was on fire, but he also noticed the thing's not burning up. It's not being consumed, which was a, a miracle. And he's saying, I, I can't believe this. I'm going to go over and take a look at this thing. So at that particular point, then the Lord saw him. And, uh, and obviously he knew he was there all the time. But when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him 
out of the midst of the burning bush, and he said, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here am I. I want to share uh, another one of those, uh, I guess you'd call it articles, written by the same guy that I read to you in the Sunday morning worship service this morning, Craig Parshall. And uh, Craig is a um, he's a legal advisor, special counsel for ACLJ, and uh, he is also a best-selling novelist. And um, he and his wife Janet Parcell was um, a very conservative talk show lady for years, and written some books, and uh, even to this day is a very interesting uh, um, debater and persons of conservative thought. Anyway. Greg Roth that wrote this, he's a lawyer, and uh, it captured my attention because I had never thought of this before. Let me just read it to you. It'll be simple and you can understand it, I'm sure. It says, uh, and he's talking about U.S. Supreme Court issued a long-awaited opinion about the Oberg, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, which uh, gay rights activists won the constitutional right for same-sex marriage. Five of the nine justices granted the right, inventing it out of whole cloth. I'm not familiar with what it, that, that means, but bringing it out of whole cloth. Then he says, although Justice Anthony Kennedy used more t- temperate language when writing for the majority in this particular order, I doubt that he and the other four liberal justices have softened in their suspicion that traditional Christianity threatens their radical efforts at social engineering for our nation as a whole. And he says, My chief concern now is not for the court's stunning redefinition of marriage, which is only the beginning of a mangled marriage reformulation. Some people are already demanding that polygamy now be recognized equally. No, my concern is for the church in the 21st century because it may soon, it may soon be the church in captivity. He says, in fairness, the Kennedy majority opinion did at the very end of the script make a minor gesture toward the religious liberty and the rights of Christians or people Christian holding traditional moral religious views that oppose the same-sex marriage. Justice Kennedy wrote that such believers may have First Amendment protection to advocate and to teach their beliefs, even if it's contrary to the decision in Obergefell. He says, but as the Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. noted in his dissent, it is highly troubling that this thin and insufficient reference to the supposed rights of religious people omitted the phrase free exercise of religion, the very phrase used by our founding fathers who drafted the religion uh, clause of the First Amendment in the first place. Justice Roberts probably suspects that the court's left-leaning sinner has all an anemic view of religious liberty where Christians will be permitted to advocate and teach their views, but little else. Even then, such advocating and teaching could be restricted or outlawed if the tone or content of the message offends the diversity and tolerant enforcers are those who belong to this newly protected category of same-sex relationships. Justice Clarence Thomas, in his dissent, noted, Justice Kennedy also failed to recognize the right of religious dissenters to actually act on their beliefs. These are ominous signs of captivity. Of course, there will be more court cases and many years of litigation before we know the full extent of the damage the Supreme Court did to the freedom of religious conscious America. I suggest we go to the Scriptures for guidance, encouragement, impetus. If we become a church in captivity in a pagan culture, we should consider the Israelites. The book of Nehemiah, God enabled them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem despite a virulent, I guess is the way to pronounce it, opposition. In Ezra, they rebuilt the temple, even though violent protest was mounted against them. 
And before the Babylonian captivity, the Lord called the prophet Jeremiah how the Israelites should conduct themselves while in Babylon. Followers of Jesus would do well and be well advised to read Jeremiah 29, where God told his people to continue building their houses, their families, their livelihoods, to avoid the corrosive effects of false religious teachers, and to seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Verse 7 of that passage. We must not give up. It is not time to rush to the desert and hide or cower ourselves in church basements for fear our hymn singing might irritate our pagan neighbors. We must continue to influence decision-making both in the culture and in the halls of government as long as we have breath. If we actively seek America's welfare and pray for it, perhaps we can find our own welfare better. God's promises are not up for review by the fractured and failing Supreme Court. They are everlasting. They are the rock-solid foundations of our courageous conduct in the future is based on it. And we must always remember the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. I say to you that it struck me when I read that some time back, and I held it for such a time as this, that uh, it'd be easier for us to think in terms of what happened in, uh, to Hebrews in Egypt, that that was just a historical event back years and years and years ago, and it has absolutely nothing to do with us. But the truth of the matter, it has a lot to do with us. You may catch yourself in, uh, in a community, and uh, if, if you happen to be uh, a Democrat, in Franklin, in Johnson County, uh, you're already on the short end of the polling stacks. And the fact of the matter is, it could also turn out to be that as a Christian, you would also be on the short end of the polling stacks. And it could be that everything you and I stand for would one day be absolutely acceptable in Franklin, Indiana, and Johnson County. What would happen then is there would be a much more scrutiny taking place of, of what we do here and what we preach here and how we handle ourselves. Uh, they'll look at us, and if it came to a point where they believe that our community is better served, then it could be that they'd begin to tighten down on us, that we watch what we say and what we preach and how we do it. The fact is, you could turn into a city, community, or a county of captivity in a very short way. No, oh, it wouldn't be you'd be in prison, and it wouldn't be that you couldn't leave the area and move to some other part of the country. You could do that. But your rights and privileges as what you believe as a Christian could be greatly restricted. So the fact of the matter is what you read about in the case with Moses and his responsibility to lead these people out is really a big deal. It's just like part Craig said, this lawyer states in this case, we need to keep an eye on Israel and understand what God told them. Because they got caught in the same thing. They were placed down there. They got themselves in bondage in Egypt. And in doing so, they got so restricted of what they could and they could not do that many of them forgot the things of the Lord. I mean, they didn't get to, uh, uh, they didn't get to uh, do the things that they would normally do on the Sabbath. They didn't get to do their feasts. They didn't do their Passover. There's a lot of things that got suspended until they got out of bondage, uh, out of Egypt. And the fact of the matter is, what a lot of them did is their children didn't hear, didn't know, didn't understand what the Lord expected of them. So it became a matter that it's important that somebody take charge to get them out and get them reacclimated as God's people. One thing you don't want to do, and uh, we need to start early and stay late to get it done, is but if you have folks for whom you're responsible... If you have children, grandchildren, you need to understand you need to do everything you can to affect them with the truth of God's Word. You need to help them make decisions not whether they're Republican or Democrat or Independent, not whether or not they agree with certain things or issues that are going on. You need to get them acquainted with God's Word so they can make ongoing decisions that are wise. Because all of what they decide ought to come on the basis of what does God say. And that's what Moses is going to hear from God is going to be a hammering of when I say this, I want you to believe it. And if you don't do that, you can't lead my people. 
you can't get these folks out of there and you will not be able to train them and teach them what they need to hear. You will not help the next generation, those folks that are coming down the pike. You won't be able to help them. And when you get out of here, there's going to be rebellion like you have never seen in your life. And there were. There were a lot of folks who started out of Egypt who died in the wilderness and were buried there. And one of the cases when the earth opened up and that group with Korah went down in the earth and that was the end of that. And I say to you, it becomes a matter that uh, in that kind of ideology and philosophy of which they are to be taught, God's laying a heavy burden on Moses to say, it's going to be up to you. You tell them what I tell you. And you make sure you tell them exactly what I told you. And that's why it continues later on when we hear uh, God talking to the prophets. He said, you go tell them, thus saith the Lord. And may I tell you that every pulpit in America, every pastor in it ought to hold by the same rule of God's law. You don't go around telling them what you think and what would your, be your opinion. You go tell them what the Bible says. And everybody becomes accountable and responsible to me, God would say. So in this passage of Scripture, when uh, Moses is on the backside of the desert, he's got these people who God is talking about, uh, going to be talking about in chapter 3, that he's going to lead out of there. God does it in a, a remarkable way. You see, he brings him, uh, uh, first off in verse number 2, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him uh, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, I said it last time, and it should be and probably ought to be repeated frequently, uh, fire is a, a symbol of both the presence of God and the judgment of God. Anywhere you see uh, fire in the scriptures, uh, somebody said God's going to be nearby. You can just bank on that. And uh, the consequence is in this passage of scripture, the angel of the Lord we believe would be the um, Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, what's called a theophanies. And uh, believing and we know that this angel of the Lord um, is uh, really the Lord because verse number four says, And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. So remember, verse two says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the flame of the fire in the midst of the bush. So out of the midst of the bush... The Lord, the God of heaven, speaks to him, and he's called the angel of the Lord. We would take that as a theophanies of the Lord Jesus Christ, Old Testament appearance, because that was one of the names that's often used of him in appearance in the Old Testament. Then in uh, verse number 2, especially so, when he talks about this bush that's on fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now remember, he's on the backside, uh, verse number 1 said he's on the backside of the desert. Uh, that's to tell you that in a desert area there's arid soil, arid land, and it would tell you that anything that's dry enough to be on fire uh, could start a big fire, and it could burn up everything around because it's a desert. It's dry. It doesn't get a lot of rainfall. But what's amazing about this is this arid soil, this dry bush is on fire, but it's not consumed what it sets forth is, is very clearly God's got something he wants to make a point with Moses about. He's not uh, doing this as just a show and tell uh, to get a curious conversation going. He's got something he wants to say here. And the one thing is for sure that, uh, and, and we can see this, and in fact, let me, uh, let me take, it to you, take you now to it. Look, if you would, in uh, the prophet Isaiah's book, Isaiah chapter 63. Look at Isaiah chapter 63. This is a, a good passage, a good verse. Chapter 63 of Isaiah. And notice in Isaiah 63, look down to verse number 7. In Isaiah 63, verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. And verse 8, For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. Verse 9, In all their afflictions 
he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. What's important about that is, is the Lord identified with these people. Verse number 9, in all of their afflictions, he was afflicted. Evidential that he is saying, I'm identified with my people. Let me let you in on a secret. The same is stated again and again, and inference is, is for all of God's children, not just the Israelites, not for the Jews and the Hebrews, for all of God's children. Since we come to by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become a child of God, it would be the same for us. And that's to say that he not only sees your suffering, there's a sense in which he enters into it with you. He was afflicted with these people. These people were afflicted, and he was afflicted with them. Now, that, uh, that's uh, the best and the strongest emphasis of the Scripture on personal identif- identification of the Lord with his people there is in the whole of the Bible. Is that if he would be identified with you when you're afflicted in, in your hard times, then it's a walk in the park that he'd be with you when everything's going great guns. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we reverse that? We think when everything is going great guns, the Lord is right there. Boy, he is really, really close. That's not really what the Bible says. The Bible says it's your toughest times that he'd be the most obvious. Not that he's not there all the time because he'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. And he's always with us in the person of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. That's for sure. But at the same time, it is amazing that the Bible emphasizes many times, often, that the Lord is identified with us when things are bad, when things are not going good. And I say to you that that's, a, that's the kind of uh, Lord God we have is not a fair-weather friend. He doesn't just show up when everything's rosy. He shows up when everything's sorry and sorrowful and down and discouraging. And I say to you that with the case with the Israelites, there's a reason then he would be talking to them out of a bush that would not burn. Because Israel's been referred to as the indestructible people. And I believe that uh, in this particular case, I believe that um, the Lord was teaching Moses, um, I've got a stake in these people, and they've been persecuted. And it's interesting too, is it not, that uh, the furnaces in Egypt were referred to as the fire that would hurt and harm the Israelites when they were down there? The fire. But it's almost as if he said, hey, don't worry about it because my presence is alluded to and referred to by fire. I showed you last week in the book of Daniel where the Hebrew children, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, were placed in the fiery furnace. And I love the story. Probably my favorite in all the Bible. As I said last time we were together, when the king Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he asks the question, did we not cast in three people? And I guess they said yes. Then he says in a question, the Hebrew emphasizes more of a perturbedness about it, saying, then how in the world is there four in there? We threw three in, now there's four walking around, and they're loose and they're walking around. That's to tell you that That fourth was likened even by Nebuchadnezzar's own perception that he's the Son of God. He showed up. And what's interesting, as I told you then, I'm not so sure. And I've looked at the passage and I've read it and I've done some rabbit trail running with the words and the Hebrew and I've checked it all the way through. I can't find any evidence that the three Hebrew children, Ananiah, Azariah, Mishael, even knew the Son of God was there. I don't think you could prove that they knew it. Uh, I don't think you could. Because I think that's the way he operates. Because the just shall live by what? By faith. Because he said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now the question is, do you believe that or do you not? So when you run into some hard times and things don't go the way you hoped they would, are you going to say, I don't feel like the Lord's nearby? Well, don't blame Him. If you're a believer, He indwells you by His Spirit, 
And He's told you, I'll not leave you. I'll not forsake you. Even at your worst moment, I'll be there. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll fear no evil. Why? Why would you not fear evil when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? What's the Bible say? For thou art with me. So the worst case scenario that you can come up with of the, the most challenging, difficult, hard setting that life has to offer, our Lord says, don't worry about it. I'll be right there. But there's a catch. The catch is you have to believe him. And that's why I don't believe that the Hebrew children saw him. I, I believe they acted and operated by faith. And Brother Mike mentioned it in the Sunday school class this morning when he was talking about uh, those fellows. They said very clearly. They were very straight up. If the Lord chooses not to deliver us, that's okay. We're not bowing to that image. Period. So you can go ahead and prepare us for roasting, but we're not going to bow. And we're not going to bend. And you can do what you've got to do. Now, let me tell you something. That's not Dollar Tree faith. That's not Dollar Tree faith. That's not cheap faith. That's real faith. I mean, it really gets sort of touchy when you realize that when they were getting ready to throw Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael into the fiery furnace... They picked the strong men to do it. And when they got up near the entrance, the opening for the furnace, the fire, intense heat, killed the big boys. Somebody said, well, if it killed those guys, then how did Hanani, Azariah, and Mishael get in the thing? One black preacher said, they crawled in. Now, I don't personally believe the Bible teaches that, but it's exciting to think, you know, these guys say, hey, put us in. If you can't get us in, don't worry, we'll crawl in. Because we're not going to bend, we're not going to bow, and and we're ready to go. And they get in there, they were bound, and when they get inside and Nebuchadnezzar looks, and he sees four people walking around in there. You say, well, I don't know about that thing about seeing, you know, people and, and oh, it happened all the time. You remember the case where, uh, who was it, Elisha? And he had his uh, servant, and they were surrounded by the enemy. You remember that story? Great, great Old Testament story, and right now it fails me. It's not in my notes, so I can't tell you where. But they're surrounded by the enemy. And if it's Elisha or Elijah, whichever one it was, I think it's Elisha. Elisha's servant came to him and seemed to be in a panic. And the suggestion from the, the prophet was, he says to the Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And he goes back and looks again. And he saw a crowd of the host of the Lord, bigger, more numerous than anything of the enemy. He saw it. How Were they there? Well, they were by those who had faith to believe they were there. And in the servant of Elisha's case, he indicated they didn't, he didn't come out with a great deal of faith like Elisha had. So for whatever the reason, the Lord turned on an unbelievable lighting effect, I guess. So you could see the unseen and if I told you that there are, even in this auditorium, unseen guests who attend services where the Lord is lifted up and worshipped, I would say to you that it might scare you, it might seem a little mystical, but I believe that there's a lot of help in our corner by the angels of the Lord who attend to God's people. And I think we forget that. I think we, we just look at a situation, it looks bad, and we just sort of wring our hands and so forth. And the Lord is getting Moses to a point where he'll teach him and uh, he'll, he'll train him where his first reaction is not to recoil from it, to rather ask, what's the Lord got in this? What's the Lord got in this? And let me tell you, I think Christians grow 
not by the soft times, but by the hard times. And as we do, our growing, we come to know Him better. And that's what this is about. Moses is going to have an unbelievable job description. And he has no room for a leader who does not believe God. And so God works with him to teach him, you can trust me and I'll come through for you. And the case is, it seemed like this simple little burning bush, but this is a major matter. This is to say that a God who can set a bush afire in a very dry, arid area and not burn up the whole neighborhood, and not only that, but when he gets done with this bush, it'll be just as dry and brittle as it was before it was ever set afire, but it'll still be standing. It was on fire, but it was not consumed. That's unbelievable. But why would we think that's so unbelievable when you have a God who can do what he's done in creating the world and all that in it is? Our faith just needs a shot in the arm every once in a while to be reminded that God can do the simplest of things or the most complex kind of thing. So in Moses' case, he's standing in the backside of the desert. He sees a bush that's on fire, and immediately he sees this as being something out of the ordinary. So in uh, verse number 3, he turns to look and get a closer look, as it were. And then out of that bush, the Lord saw that he was turned aside to see. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, calls him by his name. And I'm sure that got his attention. I would tell you that... uh, the Lord knows uh, your name too. And when he have this burning bush meeting, and uh, I find it interesting that even in the New Testament, let me take you there. We're, we're going to close in two minutes, but let me get quickly. Let me show you a couple of things. Look, if you would, at the book of Gospel of Luke. Luke and his Gospel in the New Testament. And I admit this is not uh, anything profound, uh, but it is interesting to me. It's a simple thing, but in Luke chapter number 20, Look, if you would, uh, at verses 37 and 38. This is Luke 20, Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. Look at verse 37 38. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush. Now, I, I just find this amazing that what uh, is going to be said here is about uh, the resurrection of the dead. That is, it's going to be talking about people who have died are now alive. In fact, we we take this verse, and I've used it. uh, I've been in the ministry 50 years or so, and I've used it. uh, I don't think I'd be baptistically exaggerating to say I've I've used it a hundred times or better. And, And so it says that now the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth, the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Verse 38, For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Now, what's interesting to me is that um, that gives Moses the credit for making a statement that Dr. Luke draws upon that I have drawn upon a hundred times and probably every Baptist preacher who believes in the resurrection of the just and, uh, and the life after death of the Scriptures has probably read the same text that Moses started when he stood by that bush. Though he did not understand all of it, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know that for sure, maybe he understood everything he was saying, and he understood full well what Dr. Luke would pick up and use in Luke chapter 20. Maybe he did. But I do know this. God used him to to understand enough that he speaks about the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Dr. Luke adds the footnote to say, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. But he equates that with what Moses said standing before the burning bush. So here you have the burning bush. Not only is it affecting Moses and how he's going to handle the Israelites and how he's going to address his responsibility of rescuing them in their captivity, but in this story, uh, he's used in the New Testament to bring about and underline one of the great truths of the Christian life. 
that if a man die, he will live again. Job asked that question. Job, the oldest book of the Bible, and Job said, If a man die, shall he live again? And Moses at the burning bush states, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, Dr. Luke comes along and adds to that to say, he was saying that God is the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. And in, uh, in some translations, some have it that that's what Moses said in the Old Testament. Was simply saying, Abraham, Abraham's alive and well. Jacob is alive and well. Isaac's alive and well. And Dr. Luke picks up and says, uh, see, he's telling you that those people, though they lived before and have died from a human perspective, they're alive. They're alive. I don't know of any truth in the whole of the Bible that is more exciting in the Christian life for true believers than to know that when your body gives up in this life and they say of you, he, she has died. That's only true from human planted earth perspective because we know the Bible teaches to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And don't you ever forget that your body is not you. Don't you ever get to the point where you equate you with the body. That's just where you live, just like where the house is that's got your house number on it or your apartment where you live that's got your apartment number there. That's not you, but that's where you live. The body you're in is where you live, but it's not you. And that's someday this body will will give up and it'll quit working and quit functioning. It just won't work right. And God knew that. He didn't he did not intend these bodies to last forever any more than he made a fish that can operate outside water and climb a tree. That's not what he did. He specifically created these bodies for this time period. And one day, the time comes up that these bodies quit functioning. And as they do, you don't die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So don't get lost in the humanistic teaching that you are your body, and therefore when you die, that's the end of the program. And something that a lot of people do not know is the Jews and the Hebrews, even to this day in general, do not believe in life after death. Of all the people in the world, wouldn't you think that the Jewish people would be just all over that? I mean, you'd think they just got that thing down to a to an absolute, but they don't. I uh, I have a... Jewish catalogs or magazines in my office and I uh, get to read some of the settings and stories concerning the Jewish people and one of the things that stands out like a sore thumb is they'll actually repeat it there is no life after death you get everything you can out of this life and then you are placed in the grave and that's the end of the program that's what Jewish people believe in general unless they've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is absolutely astounding to me, that only those who have trusted Christ as Messiah, Messiah, have actually a hope beyond the grave. But interestingly, every Christian, every true, born-again, saved-by-the-grace-of-God Christian, has that assurance from the very moment he places his faith in the finished work of Christ. A certainty that when you die, as most likely we all will, unless the Lord returns first, of course, but most likely we will die and we'll be placed in our bodies in a casket and the casket be placed in the earth. But all of that is about this body. What happened the moment that you died, as the world calls it, the real you took a trip to the presence of the Lord, guaranteed given to us by inspired Scripture. So I say to you, what God is going to say to Moses and what he's going to be doing with Moses at the burning bush is a is a education for life and a plan for him to fulfill in completeness his job description of how he'll accomplish what God wills for his people. God continues that. Every husband in this room is a priest of his own home. 
And he wants you to carry out the same thing to your family, what Moses carried out for a whole tribe of people, for thousands and, yea, millions of people. He wants it to be done on a small scale in every home, that the father, the husband, will come to a point of trusting God and believing him and and taking him at his word and not doubting at anything. I, I don't care what comes up to believe God. It's just what Paul said when the ships, so to speak, was sinking. I believe God. Great words of Scripture and great words of a testimony of someone who has read the Scriptures and they've been embedded in their hearts and they can honestly say with confidence and a straight face, I believe God. I hope you can. And I certainly tell you that you have enough evidence. This book is full of it. And to believe what God says and what God has done and the historical counts ought to lift your heart to its highest level of confidence in the great God that we serve. I hope you do. If you'll stand with us, we'll be dismissed without song. And let me ask you to stand and we'll pray together. And I hope you have a great week. And I hope this week the Lord will show you favor. And I appreciate your faithfulness on a Sunday evening. Thank you for coming. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful, thankful, and humbled by the Word of God and the truths that we find therein. And in this man Moses, I thank you for the way that you orchestrated his life to use him to its fullest and to bring you glory and to bring good to the people that were in bondage in Egypt. And thank you for the truths that we get off the drippings of that story and all that we'll be reading and studying and meditating on in the days ahead. I pray that you'll use it to challenge our hearts and help us to grow in our faith that we might trust you more. And I pray, Father, that you'll increase our faith as the Word of God says succinctly and distinctively that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. May our faith be strong. May it be functional, practical, relevant, and may it be impacting. Bless the men of our church who have families. Help them to be the priests of their home and help them to lead their families in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. And it will be on the basis of how much we trust you in every phase and facet of life. Help us not to bend or bow. Help us to be like Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael who were thrown into the fiery furnace. Help us, Father, to have such conviction based on your word that we would never bow down to a false god or a false philosophy that is contradictory to anything in your word. Bless now as we go from this place. Give safety and protection to your people to get them home safely. Give them a good rest. Refresh them. Help them to be healthy and well that they may serve you with the vigor and the energy that it takes for us to bear a good witness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.